This is the AMA Los Angeles Podcast. Welcome to the AMA Los Angeles Podcast. I'm Joel Metzger. This is part two of a live discussion at General Assembly in Santa Monica, and we'll be hearing again from Serena Ehrlich, Director of Social and Evolving Business at BusinessWire, and Jeremy Pepper. His title, of course, is Lord of the Realm for Public Relations and Social Media. Let's join the conversation underway. Content marketing and amplification. Kind of talked a little bit about that. You know, the one thing about content marketing and amplification that a lot of people forget is they think I've created this content. They don't really put as much time and thought into the amplification of it. Uh, a lot of people will say, "I work for Newswire. We distribute press releases," and I hear all the time, Eric Deutsch, that the press release is dead, or we're not going to issue a press release. And I laugh and I laugh because you know what? The only good content is seen content. It has to be contextual, it has to be relevant. But if I don't even know you have it, it's, you know, how is it there? So when you really think about your content creation, I, by the way, we, I had a boss come in at my job and said to me, I want you to make a video and you need to have 10,000 views. And I laughed and I laughed and I said, we get 62 views on our videos. Truth, we get 62 views on our video. 10,000's not, like, that isn't gonna happen. Like, we have to sit down and be realistic. So, you know, when you're picking your content amplification, what I turned around at that point was said, I said, what's the budget? You wanna stop a conversation, just ask what's the budget? And, you know, it, but, so it's about setting realistic goals, but then you have to figure about how you wanna amplify. And the reality is you've gotta really think about all the various ways. So obviously, I love news releases because it's part of what I do, and also I know how, how they work. They put re- information on the web, you can discover it. But advertising, looking at your most, your content that's traveling the best and the most and putting content boost behind it. Although be careful once you start doing that, as more and more people start coming to your page and you're reaching more people, which you're thinking is awesome, you start having to pay. Like you, you pay one number and you reach 100,000 people, but you have to double it to 200,000 and you want those 200,000 and you know you'll get it, but then the budget goes up. Uh, And then don't forget Google AdWords. I mean, really, when you sit down and think about amplification, you don't want to just think social channels. You really need to think about all of of all the channels. Well, here's the problem with amplification, though, um, because a friend of mine did a B2B video, and it was what the bleep, because it was trying to explain what the company did. They actually got an award from YouTube for hitting so many views. However, it was a bunch of 14-year-old kids. Yeah. So... That's the difference of creating great content and creating content that converts. You know what I mean? You can create great content. all And, you know, there are people in here all day long who get ideas or suggestions from people, and you're like, that's a great suggestion. It's not relevant. And you have to be the one to really figure out what's relevant. And that's where it really comes down to really reading what other people are doing and looking at other case studies and really thinking every time you see a program, how could I have implemented that? What can I do better? And the, literally the best thing you can do after any program is sit down and do a SWOT and say, what could we have done better? Not how did we fail? Because that's a really different, different discussion. But literally looking down at your results and saying, you know what, if we had gotten that $50 budget approval, we could have done this. And there's never a failure. It's just different expectations. Yes. It's, it's a learning experience that, that allows you to readjust for your next program. If anybody fails, you let me know, and I got, it. I got you. I'll rewrite it for you. It's the, the wonderful world of spinning. All right, so the amplification goes really well into brand storytelling and influencer relations. God, is anyone else sick of storytelling? 
That phrase is bananas. Because what does it mean? I'm telling you a story right now. Um, Storytelling. Yeah, the reality. Well, I think, I think part of the problem is I will tell you. too many brands today don't have a real story. They don't, have a, they don't have a foundation story. So, you know, there are five reasons people share on social. There are five reasons. So they share because they, um, they're building their persona. They share because they want, it's fulfilling a, a something, you know, a personal need or a family obligation. They share to support a brand or a cause. There's, you know, people share for particular reasons. So when you're thinking about storytelling, you, you want to tap into something that. So here's a great example. When people are mad, what do they do? They go immediately into search and social to validate their views and to share them out. So when people are mad, if you think about the type of content you want to write, A, you don't want to make people mad, but you might want to reverse sell. That concept, if you don't do this, you'll get fired, right? It's negative to a positive. Very happy news, people love to share. Case studies, happy client content, happy information. Sad information never gets shared. It, I, so it depends. It, it, the important well, think... studies show that these are really the kind of the paths of that. So yes, there are of course examples of that. But... I think I think FUD is a perfect example. Fear, uncertainty, and doubt that gets spread around because yeah. no one wants to be the screw up. That falls under negativity. Yeah, um, but I think something like, something that proves your point about brand storytelling. Um, let's look at United, <laughs> and every single story that's followed has been another person that's had a bad experience. I was kicked off the plane in Aspen for the CEO that's and his family. The story, you know, that's just the storyline. The reality with United is not one person would have cared at all. But when that dude came back on the plane and that one photo of him looking dazed and trying to get back on the plane, and came to out, die. you were like, drop Mike, you are done United because the visual tells the story. Well, and it was, well, it wasn't just the visual, it was the total mishandling, but that's a totally different story. But the visual's what everyone will remember. I'll remember, it's like the pink slime. Does everyone remember pink slime? The visual that they had with it. You'll never forget it. Like, I will never forget it. For some reason, I will be 90 years old, and that's the image I'll remember of my life, is, is that image. So storytelling, the reality of storytelling is you really want to do an arc, right? But you also want to plan. So when you know you're going to be about to, to launch a new product or launch a new thing, one of the first things you want to do even before you launch is think, how can I establish 10 point points now that will make this story make much more sense when I'm done telling the story? And then you want to really think about unraveling the story. There are really great brands who tell the exact same story. Like you give them one story. Like from start to finish, it's the creation of this phone because I'm going to sell this phone. And you allow them to take it. And what they'll do is actually on different platforms, they'll tell a different part of the story. And the, you have to really travel through all the platforms to get the full story. And they'll lead into each other. So what they're doing is they're actually uh, parsing out storytelling across different platforms. Um, the other thing with storytelling is really looking at different formats. You know, uh, Twitter has these amazing long form stories where you tweet, you pull up your tweet, you hit the reply, quote, reply, you type the next thing, you hit, quote, reply, and there are these beautiful narratives happening on Twitter right now where brands are telling stories and consumers are telling stories. That's all text and a GIF file. So I think when it comes to storytelling, you got to do it. <laughs> know what you want to say, know what your audience is, and then understand the content type that they consume on well, I think and then send it out there. I think a point that we haven't talked about on storytelling, though, is I think a lot of the storytellers at corporations don't understand the story themselves. Well, and, I, and I'm okay. Sound familiar, anyone? Does anybody read The New Yorker? 
Did any? Let's <laughs> two. Did any? Okay. Did anybody see the story from the New Yorker about Lyft and another one of the on-demand companies where Lyft was promoting the fact that this woman had a baby while she was driving the car because she was bored? And Lyft presented this as a great story about how their workers are so so committed to the company that she was bored waiting for the baby to be born, so she went out driving. Except if you don't believe in the sharing servant economy, you'll look at that story as this poor woman had to work until she plopped out the baby for the money. For 80 cents. Yeah, for her I 80 cents. I think that's cents. actually how they positioned it, right? Like she made $2.78. Yeah, cents and, they, and, and Lyft baby. was sharing this. And like, I think there's a, there's a disconnect of these new generation of storytellers that just don't get that their story isn't any good. Yeah. So what do you do? Oh, that's a great point. So yeah, you really have to also understand your audience. Um, Shea Moisturizer, which is a primarily African-American product, just came out with a new product line. And if you haven't seen it, the video, it's all white people. And people were like, that's well, not what true. Is, well, it was the majority. The there backlash. Were, there, there were people that didn't speak. <laughs> but what happened is, is that they had members of the community who got to preview this and told them in advance that this was not going to resonate and literally specifically said, you're going to get your ass handed to them on Twitter. Like they are going to go nuts and help them craft their reply afterwards because they were brought back in as paid consultants to write the apology, the, oh shoot, we messed up uh, note that they had. They had the data that this wasn't going to resonate, but they chose to move forward with the story narrative for whatever they were going for. And, and, and the I'm reality is, well, if we go back to even Red Lobster, the Red Lobster Beyonce blow up. Like you don't know your audience, you got to watch what you say. And yeah. I'll, well, anyway, we're probably a little off on on storytelling. No, because actually, it, 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 it flows. It flows into the next point, so don't worry. I'm so type A, you guys. So uh. I think that with, when you come with storytelling, you know, you want to do it, but you just got to be careful. You want to know your platforms, you want to know your format, but you really also want to know what you're saying. And there is a great way to, pre to present a customer story, but a better customer story would have said, we gave her $10,000 so she doesn't have to work for the next three months so she could have stayed home and taken care of her baby. Yeah. That would have been the story to tell. So really you have to think about what's going to connect with your consumer because you're right. Everybody, including the New Yorker, took that and was like, here's a slave wage story. Yeah. And, and the other company was Fiverr, which put out a press release on the other wire service. That was, nobody saw it. Well, it wasn't just that. The press release, like, no one was, the press release was no one would read this press release. And all I could think of was, God damn it, I should have applied when that position was open and I just kept it open to my window for too long because that guy's an idiot. But going back to Shay, you talked about the influencers and the brand ambassadors that they have. Let's jump right into brand ambassadors. Yeah, brand ambassadors. Right, so influencer relations. are people in this room doing influencer outreach or influencer relationships? <laughs> so you got a budget. <laughs> just kidding. And, and the budget's never big enough. So, you know, the reality is, is that, is that a, uh, the study show, Nielsen does a, a, a trust and advertising study every two years, and so we'll get it this year, which will be really nice, because I'd like to see what the changes are after the election. And they show, oh, year after year after year, study after study, they show that consumers trust what their friends share, what experts share, by 83%. That hands down, there is nothing more influential that a company can generate than my friend sharing that with me. And Edelman's trust barometer just came out recently, and the trust of media has dropped once again, the trust of politicians has dropped again, and the trust of your friends has increased. Yeah. Um, so 
who here has friends that, have, that get paid for what they post on Instagram? Yeah. Here, who here actually trusts your friends for what they're posting? There was a lot of There's shrugging. There's moments Sorry, where... I probably should have said, there were people that raised their hands for the, for the podcast. People raised their hands, and when I said, asked if they trusted them, eh, it was a shrug. But so, th I think that goes into the influential relations issue. Yeah, and so... Yes. And I'll, re I'll repeat that for the podcast. Um, your name? Damien no pointed out that part of the problem with influencer relations is the brands dictating what they want. Um, I will respond with a wonderful quote from a Wu-Tang Clan. Cream. Dollar, dollar bill, y'all. Uh, for those who don't know, cash rules everything around me. Cream, get the money. Dollar, dollar bill, y'all. And and, and, sorry, and I and I'm purely me, Serena Choke, laughing at this. But the, I think part of the problem is influencers need to push back. And um, I just did a huge outreach for a food brand, and I was very upfront, like, "Hey, got no money, don't know what the budget is. Tell me what you cost." And a lot of these people came back to me with no guidelines, but like. This is what we want for money. I had one person come back to me like saying, I'll take the product, but I write whatever the hell I want, and you don't get to dictate the tag, the hashtag, or the account. And if we do a paid campaign, it's the same thing. You know, it's the same people who are creating the one message for all their channels. They're just changing the words around, right? There's this concept of we just got to get it done. And we want you to do what we want. And we want this amplification. Mike is very familiar with this space. Do you want to say something real quick? Everyone, this is Mike Prasad. Um, so the issue is that every single tool, every single methodology, every single uh, approach has been dictated for the brand side. Um, there's no standards. There's no pricing standards. There's no like um, engagement. There's no data from all the platforms. So those standards can't be created. And so what needs to happen um, is there needs to be two things, tools for creators and for influencers. There needs to also be standards set, and those standards need to be specific to the channel, to the, um, to the engagement type, to the type of post, to the, to the buyer and the seller. And without that, uh, and it's what you see with like, like Google AdWords or Facebook ads or any other type of ad format. Uh, and without that, it becomes this hit or miss thing where no one actually knows what they're doing. Um, the brands don't, the creators don't. And, and when it comes down to it, if you really want to simplify it, what needs to happen is, Brands need to state their goals and their metrics, and creators who know their audience, who know exactly what will resonate, what will respect, what will gain respect in the audience, that will get that authenticity, need to dictate the content and the content format. Well, I, no, I totally agree. Well, I, I'm not going to throw a wrench into that because it's fun, but <laughs> the FTC guidelines are guidelines, and having worked with one of their attorneys for years because of different conferences, they're guidelines that change all the time. When they first released them, Spawn was not an approved hashtag, and they looked down on it. And then they also said they, they recommended that you post towards the top of the blog post that it was paid for. And they just sent out, FTC, if you read in the trades, just sent out emails to 90 influencers on Instagram because they were hiding the hashtag too much on the post, so no one was actually seeing it. So it's, it's a very, um, when we're talking about it's a wild west of content for influencers, it is an extreme wild west that 
even the FTC, who doesn't have nearly enough attorneys, doesn't really have, they have guidelines. I don't want guidelines, I want rules. I yeah. want steadfast rules. And there's really, you know, there's two sides of this, right? You have the creator who wants to create the content because they have their own brand, right? I want to hire you because you're you, not because I want you to be me, my brand. That's what happens. We hire influencers and then we turn them into brand spokespeople. It's also, it's Influencer marketing, it's actually, it's not just this thing you jump into. You have to really think about every part of it before you start. Think about what's their platform, what's their method of content and creation and how do they share it, and then how do their audiences engage? Are their audiences clickers? Are their audiences commenters? Are their audience sharers? And how does that activity ladder back into your goal? And then you have to have a crisis plan. Because what if the influencer you hired and had for three months, the fourth month, goes and becomes, you know, a death yeah, I mean, becomes something different. Jared, you know, there's, there's a real Jared. line here where you have to make sure that you're picking. And instead what happens is influencers are currently being found mostly, mostly manual. There are now platforms you can search for influencers, but most people do it manually. You're searching hashtags. You're searching Twitter terms. You're, you, you're doing manual search. You find people that fit your metrics, and those are the people you hire. And you don't really stop and say, I actually should look at like your last year's worth of content. You really should be doing deep dives on these people as if you were hiring to them to babysit your children. Because in reality, they can and they will shape the reputation of your brand. And then the flip side of that is good influencers where you've built a relationship where they can speak in their voice and they're driving and you're working together. When you have a crisis, you can in turn leverage them depending on your relationship to help you out of that as well. Oh, sorry. And actually, I, um, a side note on that, though, bringing up crisis, I did an informal survey uh, of friends, and the majority of companies do not have a crisis, a social media crisis plan in place. And it came about because uh, somebody pinged me on Facebook asking what I would do if Trump attacked my client. Well, the first thing you would do is go to Google, search Serena Ehrlich, Trump crisis tweets, and listen to that webinar. With Neary Chicago. We actually uh. cover the, the social crisis. But the real, and that's a, that's a thing. I wrote Mattel's social crisis plan for the corporation. So I'm really familiar with that social crisis. And, you know, there's a lot that goes in there. If you're managing social for a brand and they do not have a crisis plan, you will be, you know, that is a massive situation. A good crisis plan includes decision trees. We had thousands of Excel lists of things that people have asked Mattel, situations and crises that have happened, and the response pattern on social, how we would respond. So if a crisis happened, we knew instantly and we could respond instantly, and consumers want delay. So if you don't have that, you really have to set that up as well. And I think a big problem, and this isn't bashing on social media marketing, um, is a lot of people don't actually have a crisis knowledge or experience to write a plan. Uh, a friend of mine's had a fortune 50 right now, and she would not trust her social media manager to put together a plan if, if she was on fire, for a lack of a better expression. Um, we got five minutes left what? for our part. I have so much more to share. I know. I'm just but, kidding. Um, we, really t we really talked about visual content in UGC pretty much with the influencers. So I'm going to jump to the, or actually go backwards to social and mobile. I love it so much. And so <laughs> 
This is where everybody in the room, if you haven't studied the mobile journey, what people do, they're in the mobile marketing space, there are tons of discussions and infographics and research reports on the time of day people utilize devices and where they are and what they're doing. In the morning, people are drive by social consumers. We wake up, the, most of us, first off, mobile, they call it the lover because it's the last thing we see at night and it's the first thing we see in the morning. That's so right? sad. But it's true, it is the device. And when we wake up in the morning, we check and make sure we haven't gotten fired and that nothing's happened, right? Like we check, like I get all my drama out in the first five minutes of the day. Like I know exactly what's going on, but I haven't clicked any links. I'm looking at headlines. So your content in the morning that you want to share out, you want it to be factual based, statistics, complete information. Don't expect people first thing in the morning to click the link. Now, if it's breaking news, right, then you include the link. You, you want to have the link. Just don't expect the clicks. Yeah, even the, then, I, like, there'll be breaking news in the morning and there's no link, the, which yeah. frustrates the hell out of me. The link, the, people do click the link. And don't forget, commuter towns, New York, Chicago, there are massive, big cities, San Francisco, where people are not driving to work. What's a cab? So, it, so they are on their phones and you have that opportunity to reach them. Then you have midday before lunch. People start to slow down, they're gonna start watching content. After lunch is when video views start. So according to PBS, you don't wanna release your videos on Facebook until after lunch. And then in the evening, you want to think about the times where people are sitting down to eat. You don't wanna release content during those times. But you may wanna release content again starting at eight o'clock at night. Most people schedule content during their work hours. You are missing the fact that there are insomniacs, especially in the B2B space and researchers and people who are literally looking for information on Twitter 24 seven. So you should also be releasing content during your off hours. You should be scheduling this stuff out, especially on Twitter. You should be doing anything you do during your day, you should make sure it goes out. Hang on, we're, we're um, at the time where we're actually going to the audience Q&A, it's an official time, and I'm happy to hand you the mic as the first question. Of course. Uh, okay, let me see if I can form it in the f form no, just of a question. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> we found that um, across multiple clients that we got uh, low like commenting and likes, but high click-through rates after 9 p.m. For exactly that reason, across multiple platforms, people were just laying in bed, watching yep. TV, multitasking, and they were clicking on links. And people, we all forget that. How many of us have content scheduled that people are going to read? B2B scheduled influential content going out tonight at 10 o'clock at night. Well, and I, uh, one of my biggest beefs about all those reports that you'll see from Buffer and other companies, these are the best times. And so I always like to screw with the guy from Buffer, which time zone? Because social is international. And he always gives me a long answer that I ignore. But um, we're going to ask more questions, but I want to ask, put in one more thing for to Serena that will make her really giddy and happy. So that's not what I was meant by mobile. Jeez. Um, text messaging, messenger, and uh, since it's so, it's so new and hot, yeah. and it got a nice New York Times article, the bots. Yeah, so I am in lo I'm loving automated bots Octane AI, you can make your own bots. Bots are basically QA systems that you set up in advance. So if you know for a fact, like Mattel, Mattel gets the same 
100 customer service questions. They have this data. I didn't have to go look for it, right? I pinged customer service and said, you have it. The most frequent 100 questions, we could automate that. Somebody, when somebody types the question to us, that could reply back to them. The reality is, is that we talk about social because we can track and measure social. We don't talk about dark sharing. It's when I text Jeremy something or I email it instead of putting it on social. And that's a massive amount of, of reactions as well. If you're looking to amplify content, think about utilizing mobile apps and mobile messaging to get attention. It takes, me, it takes the average user sometimes over 24 hours to even open an email. Text messages are read in three minutes. So there's a massive amount of activity time that's moving off social and moving, moving into mobile messaging and other platforms. So social's gonna continue to, of course, to be a major communication platform. But for example, if you're Charlotte Roos, we worked with them for years, you know very well that your number one revenue generation is mobile messaging. Because you're, that, they get it faster, it's direct one-to-one, -one, and from them, they would put, you know, on Saturday between nine and 10, come in with, show this, and you'll get 10% off anything you purchase. And I'll add to that, if you are, Europe, if you're doing European work, it's WhatsApp. If you're in China, it's WeChat, and the whole WeChat app um, ecosystem. I was working with a, I was supposed to work with them, I ended up not doing it, but it was a Chinese company that had no website and no separate app besides using WeChat and integrated into WeChat. And it was for Chinese people in the US as a concierge service and couponing. And since it was tied into WeChat, it was tied into their bank account because the bank account has their own chat app in WeChat. So it's also like, um, if any of you know Aaron Strout, he, he's a mobile marketer. The big thing is, stop playing. Um, the big thing is that he, I, I was sort of pinging him like, locality, nothing works in the US, will work outside the US necessarily. Think about your different locations, especially on mobile because our networks suck compared to other parts of the world. Right. Questions. Questions. Yes. You've got one. Damien. Where's Damien? It was just more of a follow-up to your, I love the comment of, you know, post at certain times, but, you know, these times work, but people live everywhere. I think what a lot of times, too, with national brands, what we're forgetting is that just the East Coast time zone, I think, is 46% of our United States population, and we have four time zones. So we on the West Coast get super excited about our time zone, and it's probably one of the, the smaller blocks compared to what's out there. So but I do like that feedback of there can't be a perfect time when we're a, a worldwide you know, brand, but even a national brand. Well, like the poor bastards in Chicago. Everybody, it's the, it's the flyover country. Nobody cares about it. Hey, look what they did for the election. People, like, you need to think inclusive of everything, but people get, there's a political article that came out this week that talked about the bubbles on the coast and how much it ignores the middle of the country. And we can't, as marketers, as communicators, we cannot forget our customers are everywhere. I'll tell you, anybody that wants a story about that, I'll tell it after. Next question. Rachel. Um, I have a question about um, Facebook ad campaigns, specifically the lead generations that they, they have currently been creating. Um, in our company, we've been creating them, um, and we've gotten like for, you know, we'll put $500, and then we'll get 200 leads. So we're so ecstatic, but we're not sure how well the conversions are just yet because we just started. I'm not sure if you guys have any experience or thoughts on Facebook. That. 
Okay, so I actually, it is, that is the one thing on Facebook that I've done that I actually have data on. Oddly enough, I found that anytime we did lead conversion, we would send them to a landing page where we wanted them to download something, right? They will watch all the videos on that page and never download the content. So what we learned was we have to put them on a landing page loaded with videos. So we educate them, but so we literally would see our view counts increase on the video, but the conversion wouldn't happen. So we, what we did is we created side content that sort of duplicated that, and they converted that way. So it was very odd, but no, we got no downloads, but a lot of inbound traffic and time on site, huge time on site. Which is interesting because I just read an article and I was, I've been testing it out on one of the brand pages I play with, that conversion is one of the harder things but the recommendation from this um, SEO guy was, if you see a post doing well, put money behind that post. And then when you have posts that you're trying to convert people to, then you do those posts. Then because it's sort of like a domino effect. Because they're seeing the post that you've already promoted, they'll see the new post that, you're, that you are going to promote as well. Also, if you do see a post that's doing really well, and you want to promote it, or you want to amplify it, Add a, add a call to action. Yeah, for our specifically, uh, we get their information, their phone number, their email, and everything like that. And we say, hey, we're interested, call us or email us. We email them. And on top of that, we have our ambassadors calling them. So we're seeing good results, but just You may have to track that also just to, confer, to confirm that what you're putting in the ad, the promise in your ad matches the experience on the other end. Um, but I think, and then you could even in your, yeah, and then track it, you'll have to track it like that manually. Okay, we have a question uh, one here. One quick thing about Facebook ads is just to remember that Facebook parses content by type, so they also do it by words. So when the Chicago Cubs won, smart marketers use the word Chicago or Cubs in their updates the next day. And then anytime somebody on my page was talking about the Chicago Cubs, I kept getting some ad that had a little baby bear cub in it, so I didn't mind at all. But I was like, this is amazing, but they're they very textual. So change the wording in your ads to match themes that might be happening. And that's also why you want to do those demographic updates that I was talking about by market. So you can say on a snow day in, Chicago, in New York, you get higher views in that audience because you're talking about snow and the word New York, but you're only showing it to New York. We have a question here. Hey guys, so uh, you talked a lot about outbound social marketing, and I, and I love it. Um, what are you guys seeing with regard to inbound data collection, are, uh, uh, and ha and how are you using it? Like, what is the the social media uh, inbound? Uh, aspect of what you're doing, the effort, the marketing effort, what is it telling you and how are you translating that into new marketing efforts the next day? Sure. No. I got this. So measurement is something that I'm, I'm a big believer in. I believe in data. You know, I believe that data makes decisions. And so, you know, I always hear, oh, I let my gut do it. And I'm like, yeah, I let my gut just tell me no before I pull the trigger or not, but I make let data tell me what to do. So with uh, what I do, the very first thing in social is I use URL builders or UTM links, right? These I get from my analytics program. They're appended. So if I'm going to businesswire.com, you see businesswire, but when you click on it, it's businesswire.com slash UTM slash Twitter slash this. So it allows me to understand 
the inbound traffic I'm getting from each different platform. Now, I do these by platform, right? I have one UTM link for Twitter, one UTM link for Facebook, one for this. But Hershey, the company Hershey's, they have one link for an entire brand unit. So instead of worrying about, and then when they look in their analytics, that's where they can tell where the inbound traffic came from. So they don't worry about doing platform specific, but that way they can tell the success of a brand line. But what that will tell me, so the inbound traffic comes in. The very first thing you wanna know is how long were they on your site? This is huge because what people haven't been adding these links in, they're driving the traffic to the main page, your average time on site is one second. Oh, that's great, all that work, one second. Turns out if you'd put them on a deeper page, you would have gotten more conversion, or you could actually get budget to rebuild a landing page. You're never gonna get budget to do re redesigns and fixes without this kind of data. So time on site, you also wanna know if they're a first time visitor, because then you get credit. Remember, you have to track and take credit for your work. You get credit for new traffic inbound. If it's their third time, it's consideration. The average sales cycle now is 22 to 25 touches to see a br with a brand, which means somebody may have to come to your site 10 times before they convert. So you want to know if you're converting them or that it's going to tell you if you took an action, right? Did I complete a purchase? Did I fill out a form? Did I do that? So you're going to have that. Then you're going to want to know if they're mobile or desktop. If they're mobile, you're going to create different content. You might create, instead, you might create cards instead of full long text. So you may look at the different content types depending on the platform. Then you're gonna to wanna to look at Android versus Apple. Then you're gonna to wanna to look at the areas of the country. You might be doing a lot of paid advertising and when you look at your inbound traffic, you find that it's highly successful but only in two or three markets. Well now you can reduce your pay and you can create custom market focused things. So you get a lot of data but you have to utilize UTM links. You have to impend and make sure that you're getting this data. And if you don't, literally just ask your digital team, and most people in here are on the digital team, so ask yourselves, where is my link? But, uh, so I would say as far as inbound traffic, the other thing a lot of people do is they look at bit.ly links or shortened links. Just so everyone's aware, if any shortened link in the world, anybody, custom, non-custom, if I put a plus sign at the end of it, I can see all your metrics. So every time you're using a shortened link, don't forget that you're also letting the entire world, including your competitors, put a plus sign and see how successful your ad campaigns are. A little random, but that's what I do for inbound. I utilize that and I align and I really look at my analytics to see if I'm achieving my goal. And if I'm not achieving my goal, I have to really figure out, is it the content, is it the audience, or is it the platform? I like and, to blame the audience. And I was just gonna go a different route with HubSpot. Which was, I worked closely, the last B2B enterprise tech company I was with, worked closely with the marketing team that handled all the HubSpot marketing. And it's interesting because we could see a seasonality change of inbound. Um, Christmas, we got more response from the videos and webinars than we did from the blog post. And then um, post-Christmas, or I guess pre-Thanksgiving, the blog posts were doing better, but they were also being amplified by advertising. And a almost everything that we had, to my dismay, because I thought it was annoying as hell, was a call to action. And then we also, well, it just, it just, it, we had to force it in there and it just never worked well. So, but ironically, it worked well. And also though, we also broke it down by verticals because of who our customer base was.
We have a question back here. He's got some mics, so you see all these people too. Right? Hi. Hi. I'm Yvonne, and I had a quick, two quick questions. Yay. Um, I have a small business. It's a fashion company. It's online, ygfashions.com, if you ever want to check it out. Um, and I wanted to know um, how, what's like the best way to increase followers? My target markets, uh, women ages 18 to 30, um, it's music festival inspire like Coachella stagecoach Pandora so, audience I mean not Pandora the music Pandora the jewelry company so um, in case you're wondering. so yeah my yeah. question was how what, what's the best way to increase followers and um, on Instagram and Facebook when would be the best times to post to uh, increase sales through my website uh, uh, okay a friend of mine has a very well followed Instagram account for her fashion startup and she posts nonstop and I'll have to look it up but it's all times of the day and it's both her and her brand but what it, what it comes down to is she's hired Instagram fashionista influencers to be the models who then also share the post and she's also done some very very savvy as hell guerrilla marketing at Coachella and Stagecoach is not her audience and she also does Comic Con because she, she did not plan for it, but a lot of her customers ended up being Comic-Con cosplayers. Yeah, I think that it kind of depends on what, if your goal is to build your business, and I know we're talking about social here, but don't forget PR. Editorial coverage, when you start sharing that out, that is a completely different ballgame because that's a third-party reporter saying this company is something you have to look out for. It, so I would also consider reaching out to media outlets and introducing yourself and when you have like a new line or when you have a story angle so you have content to share. I think that hashtag searches do very well. I mean, 80% of people are, are manual. There are companies out there that can help you find influencers, but you really want to look online. And then you want to have the right content. And then you want to look and see who's, who's having these discussions. So obviously Twitter, not your audience here, not what we're talking about, but Twitter has tweet chats. If you're looking to reach a particular audience, go to a tweet chat. Go to, and then all the, the other thing is go to conferences, go to events like this, get your photo taken with somebody else who's more famous, essentially tag them, retweet other people's, repost other people's work. This, photographers, repost photographers work. Also, Magic has a startup section where you can be a small brand and get in. I, I Magic show in, Chicago, in Vegas. Vegas? Yeah, I filled out another friend of mine who's a fashionista. I filled out her application for that for her because the PR skills. And she got in and actually that helped pretty much launch her brand. Magic. Just like I do magic. I know it's... Magic. The, it's, a, it's, a, it's the name of a particular type of trade show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's give it up for Serena and Jeremy. You've been listening to the AMA Los Angeles podcast. For more information on the American Marketing Association's Los Angeles chapter and to find out about upcoming events, follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. This podcast was produced by Joel Metzger and Icebox Logic.